caught on to that. But if you are watching online, I'm sorry that there has been no camera video this morning. Um, but you should still get to see all the notes and everything. Um, we are told that we're supposed to take everything that we hear and we're supposed to test it. And I, I kind of, I think that maybe like with social media and news pages and all that, that should start becoming like the disclaimer at the top that you can never exit out. Everything you read here, put it to the test. Everything you read here, question it and look at other sources. Because if you're, if you're like me and you spend any time on social media or you spend any time looking at the news, you know that there is a lot of false information out there. And really, I kind of believe that even with the fact checkers that are out there, that disclaimer should stay up there. Like, everything you read that this fact checker says is true or not true, put it to the test and question it. Don't just take it at face value because we have, I mean, and, and I'm saying we as in myself too, We've gotten lazy, I think, when it comes to if we read it and it's a source that we like or it's an answer that we like, we just immediately say, well, this is obviously true because this agrees with what I want it to say. And so I'm not going to do any background checking. I'm not going to do any more research after this. And, you know, this thing, it says it was fact-checked. So obviously it's good to go. And we're lazy and we don't go the next step with that. Even in scripture, which was written a long time ago, and even when it comes to, to looking at things that I say from this platform to things that you're going to hear other pastors say, we are actually instructed to test everything that we hear. In 1 John chapter 4, if you want to look that up later, if you want to write it down, in 1 John chapter 4, it says everything, and this is my, my paraphrase, Everything you hear a pastor say, everything you hear somebody who's talking about God, everything that comes out of their mouth, put it to the test. And so I would encourage you, as I've been encouraging people for the last 15 or so years when I've had opportunities to speak, put everything you hear to the test. Everything you hear here, everything you hear from your parents, everything you hear from your teachers, everything you hear on social media, everything you hear in the news, put it to the test. Don't just take it at face value. And that's, that's different than just walking around doubting everything that comes out of everybody's mouth. That's saying, I want to make sure that I believe the correct things, and so therefore I'm going to do a little bit of work on my own so that I don't walk around ending up believing something that's completely false. I'm really tempted to tell a story there, but I'm not going to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reel myself back in, and maybe at the, it's, it's one to make fun of myself, and so I really don't want to tell this story. So maybe I'll save that one for later. If I'm getting near the end and I feel like I have time, I'll go back and I'll tell that story, but I'm not going to do it right now. Last week on Easter Sunday morning, I was told by several people, uh, either on Easter or throughout the course of the last week, that that was unlike any message that a lot of people had ever heard on an Easter Sunday morning. Because when we come in on Easter Sunday, we don't expect somebody to come in and compare the resurrection to pigs flying. Had any of you just wondering, had any of you ever heard the resurrection compared to pigs flying? Anyone? Okay, I was just wondering. If I'm being honest with you, that was the first time I'd ever heard a message like that. But I wanted to talk about that last week on Easter Sunday. Because I know that it's a week where there are typically more ears willing to listen. And I think that in the church, 
we need to be more willing to recognize that the things that we believe and the things that we teach do sound a little bit far-fetched sometimes. I mean, they're, on face value, the idea of a dead man walking is a ridiculous notion to believe. And if we walked out of here and we said, hey, you'll never believe it, my dead grandpa, he just came into my house and he was just talking to me. People are going to look at you and they're going to question you. They're going to check you into a psychiatric hospital. They're going to do something to make sure that you get checked out. They're not going to immediately believe it. There are a lot of things that we do as Christians, and I've talked about this over the years with youth. There are a lot of things that we do that from the outside world, from people who, who don't understand all of this stuff, look and sound like really ridiculous and sometimes some pretty freaky sounding things. If we can just be honest for a minute here. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks as we, uh, as we talk about traditions and things like that. But if you stop and think about it, one of the most sacred traditions that we do in the church is a thing called communion or the Lord's Supper. Where we come in here and we say that we are drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. Now from the outside world, what do we think that sounds like? Cannibalism which we frown upon here in the church. Or we're going to take you and we're going to dunk you underwater and we're going to pull you back out and that's the symbol that your sins and all these mistakes that you've made are clean. From the outside world, from people who don't understand what's going on with that, that sounds ridiculous. And so we are just acknowledging, and I wanted to acknowledge last week on Easter Sunday, that if we don't understand what this all means, and if we haven't considered the evidence as to whether or not this happened, then the idea of a dead man walking sounds ridiculous. I want us to continue that conversation this morning. I actually had several people come up and say, so we, we are going to, like, we're going to dig deeper into this, right? And I mean, they seemed excited about it. I don't think it seemed like a, please tell me we're not going deeper with this. Like, come on. I think they were excited about it. And so this morning, we're going to continue to dig deeper. Remember last week, we talked about the idea that if, if none of this happened, if the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. It's useless. Paul himself said it. That if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Jesus was a false prophet. He wasn't any of the things that he claimed to be, or at least there's no reason to believe that he was the things he claimed to be if he lied about such a big thing. If it didn't happen, then why in the world on a Sunday morning when it's rainy and dreary outside would we want to get up? And come in here and sit in a pew next to a bunch of other people at the hopefully the tail end of a pandemic and worship somebody who didn't do what he said he did in the first place. But if it is true, then it means that the supernatural can indeed happen. It means that we have to consider all of the things that Jesus said, not just some of them. And it means that his radical claims of divinity at least can be believed because dead men don't rise from the grave. And if he did that, 
then we have to at least stop and consider that all of those things are true too. Now, I mentioned last week that we cannot prove that the resurrection happened beyond a possible doubt. But I do believe that as we look at the evidence, as we look at the proof that we have in front of us, that we can believe, and the evidence does suggest, that the resurrection did happen beyond a reasonable doubt. And in the courthouse setting, which which I'm, I've always been intrigued by, in the courthouse setting, it's to, we have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. There will always be the possibility out there that something is not true. But can we prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? So as we dig deeper into this this morning, I want us to consider what um, a man by the name of Habermas, which that, that may, name may not mean a whole lot to you, but you can write it down, you can look him up later. He's a really, really smart guy. Um, he's written some incredible books. He, uh, he came up with this approach called the minimal facts approach. And this is used in, in the courthouse setting. It's used as we discover or as we, uh, as we jump into cold case type things, as we jump into discovering the evidence and looking at the evidence of the resurrection. The minimal facts approach is that we look at those things that are generally accepted by everybody as true, that we can agree on these things as being true. For instance, when we are looking at the shape of the earth, it is generally accepted, it is not universally accepted, but it is generally accepted that the earth is a sphere, it is round, it is not flat. We generally accept that. And so as we look at things about the resurrection, what are some things that most scholars, not all scholars, but what are some things that most scholars, whether they be Christian scholars or whether they they not be Christian scholars, whether they be believers or non-believers, what do they agree on? And some of those things that they agree on are that one, Jesus did in fact live. He was a real man who walked around. They might disagree as to who he really was or what he really was, but they agree that Jesus actually lived and they agree that Jesus actually died. And most would agree that Jesus died by crucifixion by a horrible death penalty that the Romans had come up with that they would put on the worst of criminals or just somebody that they felt like getting rid of. They agree on these things. They believe that his followers were convinced that something happened. Now, they don't agree on what that thing was that happened. But scholars, both believers and non-believers alike, most of them would agree that the early followers of Jesus were convinced that something happened. And they agree that a man by the name of Saul, who later went by the name of Paul, who in the biblical scriptures, um, you know, we often make the comment, and I think I made the comment last week, we say that he wrote like half the New Testament because he started all these churches and then he would write to the churches and now we have these letters and we see his story, they agree that he was convinced of something. That he was a church persecutor, and he ended up being such a church supporter and a supporter of Christ that he was persecuted for it. They might not agree as to what convinced him or what he was convinced of, but they agree that he was convinced of something to the point that he completely changed his life. And they agree that James, the brother of Jesus, was convinced that something happened. Something happened strong enough to take James 
the brother of Jesus from this, this point of thinking his brother was a little bit insane for all the things that he claimed to be and all the things that he claimed to do, to all of a sudden now being convinced that his brother was in fact God. And we talked about that last week. What would it take to convince you that your sibling is God? Owen, what would it take to convince you that Abe is God? Abe's like, dude, he should already believe it. But what would it take to convince you that your sibling is God? Because that's what happened with James. And while scholars may not agree what happened, they do agree that something happened. So these are the minimal facts that we have that we can look at, that we can say that most people agree on these things. They might think that the followers were crazy, but they do agree that the followers were convinced that something happened to the point that they were willing to go to their deaths for this thing that they were convinced about. And so as we do this, here in just a moment, we're gonna start looking at some different theories that are are out as to what happened 2,000 years ago. But as we go through these theories, I want us to remember these minimal facts, and I also want us to to look at how do we go about testing the theories? How do we go about looking and see, okay, which one of these theories is the best one? Which is the one that we should believe? And there's four different things that I want us to look at. No, I did not come up with all of these. These are used way before my time came along. But one of them is the explanatory scope of the facts. And the explanatory scope, so you guys are, you're getting to learn all sorts of legal jargon. This is like, this is exciting for me because I feel like I'm in a John Grisham book and I'm getting to explain all this stuff, but with a very biblical standpoint instead of the stuff he writes about. Um, But the explanatory scope is essentially which one of the theory, which, uh, which set of evidence, which idea best pulls in the most facts. Which one best explains the most historical facts? It's a very quantity type of approach. So as we look at these four facts that we have, that Jesus was crucified, that his followers were convinced, Paul was convinced, James was convinced, which one brings the most of those in and explains it? And then we look at explanatory power, which comes from not the quantity, but into the quality approach. Which one not only explains them, but does the best job of explaining the facts? There may be multiple theories that explain why his followers were convinced, but which one does the best job of it? Which one makes the most sense? We're going to look at plausibility as we look through these. Which one of these, based on the accepted truths of the world that's around us, best explains the facts? best explains what it is that we're looking at. And then finally, which one uses the least amount of ad hoc? Meaning which one requires us to make the fewest assumptions and presuppositions about what it is that happened? And as we look through these, we're going to go back and we're going to look at some of these things. And so the first one that I present to you this morning is the swoon theory. The swoon theory, simply meaning that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but instead, because of the extreme beating that he had already taken and the extreme amount of blood loss that he had had, 
And the exhaustion that he had had from being arrested on one night and going through the night and going through a fake trial and, and being mocked and then being forced to carry his cross up at least a short distance up a hill and then hanging on a cross for a while, he finally just got to the point where no, he did not die, but he passed out because he was that exhausted and he had lost that much blood. And so as he had passed out, and they looked at him and they assumed he was dead because he had swooned. This, you may hear it called the apparent death theory as well. But as, as he had swooned on the cross, they took him down, they put him in the grave, they, they covered him in spices. And then later on that night, Jesus woke up. Or sometime in the next several days, Jesus woke back up. And as he was in the tomb, his energy began to, to come back to him. And as his energy came back to him, he finally got to the point that he had enough strength that he was able to get up, and he got himself out of the tomb. And while I know it is so easy to look at that from the, from the biased viewpoint of somebody who believes in the resurrection, and I'm going to be honest with you, I am biased when I look at this. I'm not going to lie about that. I'm not going to act like I'm not. I believe in a resurrection. And so I look through the lens of somebody who believes in a resurrection. All of us go in with some kind of bias. And if we can be honest about that from the front, then we can be more likely to actually consider the other options that are out there. But while I know that it can sound this is, like this is incredibly ridiculous, that he could, he could lose all that blood, he could be in that condition, he could wake up, he could get enough energy that he could move a giant stone out of the way, take down two guards while he's at it, and then walk away and leave it all behind, and then all of a sudden start meeting everybody. Remember this. We're claiming that a dead man rose from the dead. So before we start saying that is a ridiculous theory... Remember what our theory sounds like, too. But there are some issues with the swoon theory. And one of those issues with the swoon theory is that the Romans were really good at killing people. I mean, they were incredibly adept at killing people. And for a Roman guard to look at a man and say, yeah, he's dead, took a lot. Normally, when they're on the cross, they would break the legs of the, of the criminal who's on the cross so that it would speed up the death. But these guys were so convinced that he was already dead that they just bypassed that whole thing. They didn't bother breaking his legs. He was that dead. They stabbed him in the side with a spear and water came out. And there's all sorts of medical stuff that I could get into as to what that means. But I'll just boil it down to this. What it means is he was dead. This was not a he was faking or this was not a he just passed out for a little while. But what it means was he was dead. From the Journal of American Medical Association, uh, Edwards, Gable, and Hosmer say this. Interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So as we look back now from all the time that we've had to examine the medical side of things, Medical people have come to the conclusion that, yep, he didn't just pass out. If all of these facts are true, then he was indeed dead. And as we look even further into this, what motive 
would the disciples have had? What motive would Jesus have had? We have to, we have to going back to that plausibility, we have to start assuming some, some motives that are in here. Like, what motive would they have to say that he rose from the dead? Because personally, and others would say this too, just the fact that he would have been able to heal from all of those wounds enough to get up and come out and start walking around again would have been proof enough that he was indeed God. So why claim the resurrection? The motive isn't there. And as we look further at our minimal facts, why would Paul have been convinced? And why would James have been convinced if all he had done was just passed out? And so we begin to see serious cracks in the swoon theory. Our second theory that we're going to look at is the, the theft it's the idea that the disciples came along later and they stole the body, or that maybe somebody else came along and they stole the body. And that's, I mean, that's, that's as simple as you can, as you can uh, narrow this one down to. Somebody stole the body of Jesus and then they hid it somewhere else. And he's still rotting away wherever that, well, by now he's probably done rotting. But he's, he, he rotted away somewhere else. Not in that spot. A lot of things have to be assumed, again, if we look at this. We have, to, we have to come to the point that we can assume that these uneducated, unlearned men became very experienced militaristically to overcome the guards that were at the door, to, to hatch a plan to go in and to steal the body. We have to assume that they would have been willing at that point to then go around and go to their death spreading a lie about what happened on that day. And while I know that there are people, and we've all had children at some point or another in our lives, whether they're ours or somebody else's, that have run a lie like way farther than they should have, where it's at that point where we're sitting there going, yeah, I figured out like three hours ago that you were lying to me, it's time to get over this and just tell me the truth. They don't typically hold on to that lie long enough that they die for it. But that's what we see the followers doing. So many different things that we have to assume as we look into this. Eusebius, Eusebius, a great Christian historian, basically he, he wrote it like this when it came to what, what would their motive have been to go steal the body? Would their motive have been, let us band together to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances, appearances which we never saw and let us carry the sham even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping inflicted for no good reason? Let us go to all the nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce their gods. And even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deceit. I don't think that's a very good motive to do what they did. And then we come into the other facts. What about Paul? What convinced Paul? Who did he see? What did he see? What convinced James, the brother of Jesus, that he was God? Our third theory that we're going to look at this morning is the hallucination. And, it's the, and, and I'll mention with, with theory number two, with our, our theft, that one came out immediately. Remember, as you're reading through your Gospels, that was the first idea that the religious leaders came up with. It goes back that far for that theory. With our hallucination theory, it's, it's essentially what it sounds like. 
that people hallucinated, they, they saw something, maybe, but most likely they just imagined everything that they saw. I mean, we've, people have hallucinated some pretty powerful things. And people who are grieving definitely have more of a tendency to see things that aren't really there. And so that's what these followers did. They hallucinated something that wasn't there. But Peter Kreeft, a philosophy professor at Boston College and the King's College, says this about hallucinations. He says, hallucinations usually happen only once, except to the insane. This one returned many times to ordinary people. 500 separate Elvis sightings may be dismissed, but if 500 simple fishermen in Maine saw, touched, and talked with him at once in the same town, that would be a different matter. Meaning, it's one thing for a lot of people to believe that they have seen Elvis. It's another thing for 500 people at the same time to believe that they've seen Elvis and touched him and talked to him and then heard him do a concert. That's what 500 people believed about Jesus, that they saw him, that they touched him, that they heard him speak and they heard him teach, and they all did it at the same time. So all of a sudden, we have to start assuming things like mass hysteria all at the exact same time. But we also have to assume that that mass hysteria happened more than once. And we also begin to run into the issues again of why would Paul be convinced? Paul was not grieving the death of Jesus. James would have been grieving the death of Jesus, but he didn't believe that Jesus was God. So we begin to see cracks in this theory of hallucinations, not only from the standpoint of how hallucinations work, but how they answer for the minimal facts that most scholars agree to. We've got three more that we're going to run through this morning. Theory number four, that people invented Christianity based on pagan myths. What if I were to tell you that there was a God who was born of a virgin, who had 12 disciples, who, let me make sure I get this right, who was born of a virgin on December 25th, had 12 disciples, did many miracles, and he came back from the dead. You would assume I was talking about Jesus. Or I could be talking about Mithra. Because the same holds true for Mithra, the Persian god. Not God, that we, not the Christian God, not Jesus. And so people begin to see parallels in these. They begin to see parallels in, in the story of Osiris who came back from the dead, whose wife put his body back together. And they see these parallels that are in these stories, and the, the accusation is, the theory is, that Christians stole these ideas and they put them all together. And that makes a lot of sense. Does it not? If you really stop and think about it, why would ours not be created if we believe that all these others were created? Except that as we begin to dig deeper into these other religions, some of them are things that have popped up on social media in recent years as, as things to, to prove that Christianity doesn't exist. And as we really dig in and test the evidence, we begin to see that they have recently been invented. Meaning they have stolen from the Christian story 
to create this story. We see in the, the story of Mithra different things about Mithra that actually are not long-standing tradition, but are things that have been put into the traditional beliefs about Mithra recently. Not 2,000, 2,500 years ago, whatever it is. And so we begin to see these parallels begin to break down. And as we dig in deeper, even with Osiris, well, yes, Osiris, the theory is, that, or the, the, the belief is that Osiris came back from the dead and his wife put him back together. But the belief is not that Osiris then walked around on the earth and taught. The belief is that that was it for Osiris at that point. And so we see these different stories begin to, to fall apart and the, the accusation that Christians stole these ideas begins to fall apart as we really test the evidence. Theory number five is that years later the, that Christians just created the facts. That enough time had gone by that the followers of Jesus were able to come up with all of these different facts that they put down and people just willy-nilly believed them. But it doesn't answer again for why Paul. It doesn't answer again for why James. It doesn't answer again for why would the disciples do this in the first place. It doesn't answer for these different issues that we have. And as we look at when things were written down, it's not as much later as we are typically told that they were. As early as 20 years, we begin to see documents being written about what happened. And even sooner than that, we see creeds being written. We may not have thought of them as such, but we see Paul referring back to a set of beliefs that had already been out there. And Paul's only writing 20 to 25 years later in Corinthians when he writes about them. About the beliefs that the disciples saw Jesus rise from the dead and they walked with him and they talked with him. And so this idea that it was just enough time that we could come up with a, a, a good story begins to fall apart. Finally, we have the theory of the resurrection. We have the theory that Jesus, who we looked at over the course of the past month and who he really was, that he was fully man and he was fully God, that he went to a cross and he was crucified and he died and three days later he rose again, that man, that's our theory. That he actually rose from the dead. And admittedly, there is a giant assumption that has to be made for the resurrection. And that assumption that has to be made is that God exists. If we're going to be honest, we have to admit that not everybody believes that. And that is an assumption that we live with. It's not an assumption we live with without any kind of evidence whatsoever. But it's an assumption that we have to make in order to believe that the resurrection, that a man rose from the dead and walked around again, actually happened. But a resurrection fits the minimal facts. It fits that Jesus was crucified. It fits as to why the disciples would have been so convinced. It fits as to why Paul would have been so convinced it fits as to why Jesus would have believed that his own brother was in fact God. But we do have to assume that God is real. And I, 
can't believe how much evidence he has put out there for us to believe that. I know that we so often talk about how the, the most powerful thing that we have is our story. It's our story as to why I took that leap and decided to believe that all of this was true. And I do believe that that is the most powerful part as to, as to us telling our story as to why I can look at all this evidence and come up with a different answer than you do. Because other people can look at the same evidence and come up with a completely different answer. So your story helps explain how you got to that belief with the evidence. But you didn't create the evidence in the first place. And we can go beyond, you just have to believe. You just have to have faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer tells us that faith is the evidence of things unseen. If you were in here this morning, and you're sitting here and you're going, I'm here because I have to be here. I'm here because my parents have made me be here. I'm here because somebody drugged me along. I'm here because I'm not really sure if this is real and I just don't want to take that risk that it's wrong. If you're here this morning and you just, you're not there to where you can truly believe in this idea of a dead man walking, my invitation to you this morning is to consider the evidence and test it. To not just not just walk in unbelief because it's too much of a leap to believe. We can look at stories like men like Lee Strobel who set out to disprove that all of this was true and as he considered the evidence, he finally had to get to that point and say, what is it going to take to finally just realize the evidence is all pointing towards a resurrection? What's it gonna take to get me past my, my bias that I came in with ahead of time? Or people like Jay Warner Wallace, who were, you know, was a cold case detective who didn't believe any of this, and so he put his skills as a cold case detective to work. And he had to get to that point where he had to ask the question, at what point am I going to put the same things into practice that I do when I'm investigating a case and admit that the evidence points to this? And so I invite you this morning to at the very least consider the evidence if you are in here this morning and you already believe in a resurrection my invitation to you this morning is to go beyond the answer of I don't know why I just believe because if we're being really honest that answer isn't going to help very many people in first Peter we're told to be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. And I don't know, I just believe, isn't a prepared answer for people. And while I know that we have so much on our plate, we have so many things that we have to do, is there anything more important? If we really believe this stuff, is there anything more important being able to tell other people why they can believe it. It's gonna take effort. It's gonna take work. 
But what I don't want to do is just say, good luck, go out, figure it out. And so we put together some, a, a list of some resources that you can use, whether you're on that part of, I don't believe this, but I'm willing to consider, or I do believe, but I need a little bit more. We have out in the lobby 10 books that are sitting out there available for purchase. I want to tell you quickly just about a few of them. I'm not going to tell you about all 10 of them. If you don't have a lot of time, then I would encourage you to buy this little book by Josh McDowell that's been out for years called More Than a Carpenter. He got his younger son, I guess, to, to make it a little bit more hip, maybe, I don't know, but to come along and to kind of to look over some things with him. I would encourage you to look at that one. If you want to go super deep and you got a lot of time, this big bad boy right here is available for you. Evidence that demands a verdict. If you've got kids in your life or you just don't want to have to hurt your brain every time you open a book, Natasha Crane talking with your kids about Jesus. I cannot tell you how many times I've used one of her books to talk to kids about Jesus. And when I say kids, I'm talking youth. I'm talking little kids. I'm talking adults. Great book to look at. If you like crimes, Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. You've heard me reference it many times. It's available out there. And here's one of the best parts about it. It's got a kid's version. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, anybody who works with kids, go online, print off the certificate that your kids can get, print off all the different activities that they can do, and teach them at the same time that you're learning how to discover these truths for yourself. Instead of just telling our kids, hey, I believe it and you need to believe it or you're going to hell, why don't we give them some resources to figure this stuff out? Is God just a human invention so the next generation will know? You know that I have a passion for the next generation. That's why I was in a youth pastor for 12 years. This is one of the best books that I've read when it comes to knowing how to talk to the next generation about all of this type of stuff. In a world where they're told this is ridiculous left and right. And then Mama Bear Apologetics. It's a book that, that Pastor Kerry is hoping, well, not hoping, will be putting together a study for, for women to go through. So if you want to get a head start on that one, we've got a good deal for you out there that you can buy it now. You can start working your way through that. And if you're not a reader, we've got websites, we've got podcasts. You can look right up there and you can write them down. You, you can get on TikTok. You can get on whatever podcast store you use. What I don't want to do is have you come in here and hear this and have me tell you, hey, you need to do more work. And then I just say, good luck, I did my job. I want you to have things in your hands. But I will say this. While you're reading those, don't ignore this one. Take everything you read in those books put it to the test against this one right here. If you're online, uh, the video's not working right now, I'm holding a Bible. <laughs> put it to the test against this one. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for not just leaving us hanging out to dry to figure all this stuff out, but for giving us evidence to look at. 
Now, we know that it doesn't do a whole lot of good to just walk up to somebody and say, you just got to believe it because it's just true. Man, to be able to give them something so that it's not just another social media or, or, uh, or news feed where we've got a cool headline but no content underneath it. Now we, we can give people meat because you gave us the evidence first. Thank you, God.